from the prophet Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horab for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Sean. Website can be found at scriptureandprophecy.com. That's where you go to find the archives, and that's where you go to support this mission of truth. And I just want to thank all of you who supported uh, the mail, PayPal, and Patreon subscribers. You guys make this happen every week, and I appreciate it so much. Today, we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our study, and we're ready for chapter 17. Now, chapter 17 is only 27 verses long, but it's full of a lot of things. We have the transfiguration. We have uh, the discussion about uh, Elijah coming again. We have a demon cast out, but it can only be cast out a specific way. We have Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection twice. So... Lots here to digest in these 27 verses. So open up your hearts and let the word of God speak to you this morning. Now, last week, or the last time we did the study a couple of weeks ago, verse the chapter 16 ended with this verse, verse 28, which says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, we often try to make that about the end times, or, uh, I mean, that's what a lot of people will make that statement about. Uh, I've attributed it to probably talking about 70 AD. One thing we have to remember, the scriptures were not originally written, broken up into chapters. We need it that way because that's how we go find verses, and it makes it easier, right? But originally it was just written as one complete work. So, with that said, it's very likely, probably more likely, that what Jesus is talking about is what he's getting ready to say in the next verse. So he says, there's some of you standing here right now that not will, taste, will not taste death until you see me coming in my kingdom. And then the next verse. Let's have a look. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 17. I'm going to start with verse 28 and then go to verse 1. Verse 28 of chapter 16, then verse 1, chapter 17. 
King James Bible. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bring them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with them. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias's. And while yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. Please note. So the disciples see the Lord in all of his glory, which is, which is likely the manifestation of the kingdom that he was telling them about right before that. But they also see Moses and Elijah, which I think is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it kind of shows maybe their uh, position. But also, it makes me think that if the two witnesses in the book of Revelation are a literal two Hebrews, that it's likely for multiple reasons, but this would be one of the multiple reasons uh, that it's likely Elijah and Moses. Very, very interesting. Um, the disciples, you know, they don't know what to do. They're seeing something that they've, that words can't explain. It's got to be terrifying. And notice when they hear the voice of God, they fall on their face because they're sore afraid. It's important to remember that even when God came down on the mount in the book of Exodus and he began to speak, the people were so terrified at the voice of God that they thought they were worried they were going to die from that fear. And they told Moses, you go talk to God for us, lest we die, right? So no surprise it would be the same situation with the disciples. Let's continue on, verse 7. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? So please note, there's two things I thought was interesting about that. Uh, number one, Jesus charges them saying, don't tell anyone about this until I've risen from the dead. You would think the follow-up question would be like, whoa, 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 you're dying, you're rising from the dead, what's going on? But they're still thinking about the crazy situation they just found themselves in. And their thoughts go to, they just saw and spoke with Elijah, the prophet, from old, right? 
transfigurated. And so they're still thinking about that, and they're like, why do they say that Elijah must come first? And of course, it's referring to Malachi chapter 4, right? That prophecy, which uh, I opened the podcast with. There, It's prophesying that a severe day of judgment is coming, when those who do wickedly shall become stubble, and everything's going to burn up, to the point there'll be neither root nor branch. Like, there'll be nothing left of of it. Um, and then, of course, in verse 5 of that passage, it says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we could say, well, that's clearly talking about 70 AD, right? And you'll understand why here in a second. Actually, let's get to that point first. So they ask that question, and Jesus gives them an answer. Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first. And restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So they're saying, Why do they say this? And Jesus says, well, that is that prophecy will be fulfilled. But here's what nobody is understanding. It's been fulfilled already in John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came. He prepared the way for the Lord. He was the Elijah figure of the day. And what followed all of that was 70 AD, where there was just the mass destruction. Now... We often talk about on this podcast the possibility of multiple fulfillments. And sometimes that happens in prophecy. Uh, it's possible that, that Elijah will come back literally. Not just in a symbolic way as John the Baptist, but in a literal form before, the, before all things, before the end of all things. Which, again, would lend to the possibility that he is one of the two witnesses, right? That we see in the book of Revelation. So, things to think about, but not to be dogmatic about. You know, remember, if a man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet that he ought to know. According to the scriptures. Try not to be over dogmatic about these things. Let's continue on. Verse 14. And they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Please note, Jesus has an interesting response to that news, that they could not cure him. Verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus answered, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, 
If you have the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Albeit this kind goeth out not, but by prayer and fasting. So please note, let's talk about this for just a second. So the first thing Jesus does is rebuke them for not having enough faith, right? Faithless generation, how long will I be with you? The disciples are like, why couldn't we cast them out? And he's like, because of your lack of faith. And he says, if you had just enough, if you had the measure of faith, the size of a mustard seed, a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, right? Remove hence yonder place and it shall be removed. Demonstrating to us how little faith we actually have, right? Like, can do you have the type of faith that can literally move a mountain? Because he's saying that it's only a mustard seed to do that. Makes you ponder. Then he goes, but, you know, how be it? This particular demon, which means there must be different types, right? can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So you can't just say, come out of them in the name of Jesus with this one, as the disciples must have tried. But it requires fasting and praying. and So it's a very powerful demonic spirit. And the thing that I draw as interesting from that is that there's not a one-size-fits-all with the spiritual world we're dealing with. Some are more powerful than others. Some require fasting and praying. And who knows how long you fast and pray. And Just interesting to think about. Uh, there's so much about the unseen world, the unseen realm, that I just don't think we comprehend. All right, let's continue on. We've got just five more verses to wrap up our study this morning. While they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And he saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And Peter saith to them, Of strangers. And Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast a hook, and take up a fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, and take and give unto them for me and for thee. Now, to end, uh, especially that last little section explaining what's happening there, verses 24 through 27. Uh, I thought I would just read to you a paragraph from a F.B. Meyer commentary because I think he kind of encompasses it and wraps it up real nice so that's easy to understand. 
that'll be the end of our study. So they come to Capernaum and they're talking about the tribute and Jesus says, who do they, who does the Kings require tribute from? Like, do they require it from their own children or do they just require it from strangers? And Peter says, well, of course, strangers. And then Jesus says, well, then the children are free, right? He's making the point. Well, then the children don't have to pay this tribute. And he's like, but notwithstanding, lest we cause a scuffle here, uh, go to the sea, cast a hook, take up the first fish you find, and in his mouth will be a piece of money. Take that money, and then you pay the tribute for both of us. So that's the st- that's the st- how the story ends here. Here's what uh, F.B. Meyer says. He says, All Jews were required to pay the half shekel for the maintenance of the temple service. Now that is in the law. You just go to Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, which says, This they shall give everyone that passes among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. And a half a shekel shall be offering, shall be the offering of the Lord. As God's own son, our Lord might surely have claimed exemption from the taxation for his father's house. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's like, do I actually have to pay this because I'm the son of God? But he waived his claims that he might not put a stumbling block in the way of others. We must, awesome com- we must often conform to requirements that seem needless because of the effect of our example on others who have not had the advantages of our illumination. Mm, the stumbling block thing is so important. We're often more worried about our own rights, aren't we? Or winning arguments, or winning our pet doctrines. You know, this is my little pet doctrine, and I, I see every little thing through this little pet doctrine. And we, we don't take the time to care about the soul of the person that we're living in front of in that moment. Instead, we have to argue with them and foam at the mouth, and right? Jesus, the Son of the living God, was willing to waive his own exemptions to avoid putting stumbling blocks for others. How much more so should we? Let me finish this commentary to wrap it up. In the miracle that followed, our Lord sweetly teaches that he is responsible for the expenses of those who have given up other means to livelihood in order to devote themselves to his service. Lord, let us get that in our hearts, that when we give up our livelihood, our ways, we take risk with our finances, with our homes, with our careers, in order to serve the kingdom of God, he will take up the responsibility of providing. That's the lesson here. Continuing on, it is as though we are encouraged to go to him to meet the demands made on us for taxes of one kind of another. He will give us what we need, kindly classing himself with us, not in two coins, but in one. Make Christ's interest your aim, and he will make your taxes his care. And then he quotes John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father 
and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That is our study for this morning. I hope that it's touched you, pierced your hearts, and caused you to draw closer to Him. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. God has been providing for me through this ministry for 10 years. Everything that I've ever needed to make it happen. And I'm just so grateful for that and for all of you. And this incredible opportunity that I've gotten to do with my life. Not as like a full-time career or anything like that. It's a get-up-early-before-work type of thing. But it's my, my greatest blessing. And I'm so honored and thankful. Thank you for listening. Peace and grace be with all of you. And until next time, God bless.